In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So as you might know, this book from which Deacon Kelly proclaims the gospel for us each Sunday, it isn't just a large print Bible. In fact, it's a, a collection of all the various gospel lessons that are appointed throughout all three years of our lectionary, copied and pasted in a way to make them easy to read and easy to find. Now, one of the quirks of a book like this is that as the lessons get pulled out of their larger context in the scriptures, they need to be edited a little bit to give more or less information to help the beginning make sense. So for instance, he's will often become Jesus or they will become the disciples. Sometimes it requires just a little bit more effort. He left from there has to get turned into Jesus left from Capernaum or whatever. On rare occasions, the editors will decide to cut out a few words to eliminate any confusion. And we have that here this Sunday, where in context, Luke 9, 28 actually begins now about eight days after these sayings. You can imagine that trying to fix these sayings would take more than a word or two. And so it makes logical sense that the editors of our gospel book just omitted them altogether, but it really puts us listeners at a distinct disadvantage. See, the story of the transfiguration is a major turning point in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke's gospel in particular, scholars argue that it is the theological midpoint of this gospel between the introduction of Jesus of Nazareth and the passion of Jesus the Christ. And to really see that here on the major feast day of the transfiguration of our Lord, it would behoove us to gain a deeper understanding of exactly why the transfiguration is so vitally important. And it all hinges on those seven words that the editors of our gospel book omitted from today's lesson. Now, eight days after these sayings, in all three of the synoptic gospels, the transfiguration happens after Jesus and his disciples take a retreat. They go to a springside resort town of Caesarea Philippi, and there Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? It's a good question. It's meant to get to the heart of how people had experienced Jesus over the last couple of years. He had been all over Israel, preaching the kingdom of heaven, healing the sick, casting out demons, performing miracles of abundance like the feeding of the 5,000. Some people had taken vacation and followed Jesus around for a week or two. Others had experienced Jesus only as he passed through their town. Who do people say that I am is the perfect question for the middle point of Jesus's ministry. And at this point, most people see Jesus as a prophet. Some thought he was John the Baptist back from the dead. 
Others thought he was Elijah, the prophet who had to return before the Messiah could arrive. A smattering of other prophets made the list, but clearly people saw Jesus as someone who was close to the heart of God, someone whose message was worth hearing, someone whose ministry would have a lasting impact. It seems that no one outside of maybe the Twelve dared to believe what Peter would say next when Jesus asks a follow-up, but who do you say that I am? Peter, always quick with an answer, blurted out what the rest of the Twelve must have been hoping for, the Messiah of God. They had given up everything to follow Jesus. They left families and careers, and to some people, respectability, to follow this itinerant rabbi on his revival tour around Israel. They had risked everything to follow Jesus in hopes that he was the promised Messiah. And to hear somebody finally say it out loud must have been such a relief to them all. What they weren't expecting is for Jesus to follow that up by immediately telling them not to tell a soul who he was. And that he had to be rejected and turned over to the chief priests and killed. And on the third day, rise again. The Messiah wasn't supposed to die like all the other rebel leaders had. Jesus was supposed to be different. He was supposed to arrive in Jerusalem with power and great glory. They didn't give up everything to follow a guy who told them that they too were going to die, that they needed to take up their cross, that they needed to give up their lives for his sake in the, the hope of some future apocalyptic restoration. Now about eight days after these sayings. This must have been a long eight days. Can you imagine eight days of awkward silences, of avoiding eye contact, of quiet murmurings and dazed stares? Eight long days of trying to figure out if there was an eject button on this thing or if they were just stuck walking the long road to sacrifice. Eight days after these sayings, Jesus invited Peter and James and John to go with him to pray. Now we can understand how this is a pivotal moment for Jesus and his disciples. Was the whole thing about to go off the rails? Would they stick with him? What would happen next. The four of them trudge up the mountain to pray, and that is where everything changed, including Jesus. Luke's gospel is the only of the three that doesn't use the word metamorphosis or transfiguration to talk about what happened to Jesus up there on the top of the mountain. For Luke, what happened wasn't simply a transformation. Luke writes that the appearance of his face changed, or more literally, the appearance of his face became other. Or more, in that moment, 
God, who theologically speaking is completely other, appeared in the face of Jesus. And that's why Moses and Elijah show up as well. They too had experienced the total otherness of God and had lived to tell the story. Moses had prayed that God might show him God's glory, and so he got to see God, but only the backside of God as God passed by. But he was so changed, as we heard in our lesson from Exodus, by this encounter with, with the otherness of God, that his face shone brightly, that his whole countenance was different, and the Israelites were afraid to even look at Moses, lest the otherness of God destroy them. While fleeing from certain death, Elijah had laid down beside a tree and just said, God, I'm done, take me. But God came and promised Elijah that he would walk with him and that God would pass by as a sign. And the story goes that Elijah went up the mountain and there was an earthquake and God wasn't there and there was fire and God wasn't there and then there was the sound of sheer silence. God was there. There, alongside two men who had experienced the otherness of God firsthand, Peter and James and John experienced the fullness of God's otherness in Jesus. On that mountain, amid prayers for what lie ahead, they received the strength to overcome the uncertainty of Jesus being both the Messiah and the sacrifice. And as leaders of the Twelve, it was enough for them to motivate the gang to continue to follow, to follow Jesus down the mountain and on the long and difficult path to Jerusalem. About 2,000 years after the Transfiguration, the face of Jesus remains a shining light for us to follow. We would do well to heed the voice that came from the cloud and to listen to Jesus' teaching, to watch how Jesus lived his life, to follow the path that Christ has set for us. Walking in the way of the cross isn't easy. It means shining a light on all kinds of things that we would rather keep in the darkness. It means accepting the reality that Jesus' death came at the hands of people just like us. It means laying down our power, our privilege, and our very selves at the foot of the cross so that God might hand our lives back to us, transfigured, changed, and restored. May God bless us with glimpses glimpses of the otherness of Jesus, that we might be empowered to follow Christ where he has led the way. Amen.